Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Breaking Down the Big Sea with myself Tom and me Liz. So today we're joined by Ria who is a clinical matron for cancer services uh, while studying a professional doctorate in health whose story surrounds her time with cervical cancer. Uh, that's to come but first Liz how's your week been? Um, it's, I've had a relatively quiet few days. It's been quite nice, actually. Um, what's been going on with me? Not a lot, actually. No. Um, our previous guest, Rob Metzcalf, I've been uh, obviously keeping my eye on him. And sadly, he's had some quite news of quite some quite serious progression with his cancer, which is sad. But, you know, as always with Rob, terminally talkative, he tells us all about it in his own style. Um no, it's been good. Still really chuffed with the feedback we're getting from the podcast. And uh, thank you for everyone for listening and sharing. Yeah, massive thank you. And uh, yeah, if uh, if Rob continues to listen to these messages, you know, I, I, uh, I hope he's uh, as comfortable as possible. And, you know, many more memories to come. And it's, you know, it's it's not the best news, but it's it's not over yet. Keep fighting, chat. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right, so this week we're joined by Ria. Uh, hello, Ria, and thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So, uh, you you had cervical cancer, didn't you? So, yeah. basically, tell us your story from the beginning. So, um, where to start? So, I was pregnant with my little boy, so my second child. My daughter was about three at the time, um, and pregnancy was fine, apart from the normal horrendous vomiting, which is just lovely. Um, and then at around five months, I started to get kind of a, like an unusual kind of discharge, really. So I didn't really think much of it, and then kind of left it, didn't think. I felt fine. And then it was about six months in, so it was the June 2016 um, that I had this random episode where I had horrendous kind of abdominal cramps and I just thought it was like irritable bowel or something. Mm. So I trotted off to the loo and um, it's all kind of bright red blood. So I thought, oh, okay, that's that's not normal. Um, so took myself off to the hospital and uh, got baby checked out because obviously my first thought was that I was kind of having a miscarriage or that something was going on with the placenta. And um, But baby was fine, baby was wriggling, bleeding stopped. Um, and so I kind of went on my merry way knowing that baby was okay. Now, the bleeding kind of carried on off and on for the next couple of months during the pregnancy. Every time I had a bleed, I'd go to the hospital hospital um, and get checked out. They check baby, they check cervix and say that everything was fine. Um, and so I'd go on my merry way again. And they just put it down to that you can have these random things that happen when you're pregnant and some people just have bleeding. Um, right. So I, I just trusted them. Midwifery is definitely not my area of expertise. <laughs> um, so I just kind of assumed that, you know, that was what it was. And then I was around August, September time. So my little boy was born by emergency C-section on the 10th of September uh, in 2016. And the reason we had an emergency C-section, well, I was supposed to have a C-section anyway because he was naughty and he was the wrong way around. Um, but however, it turns out he was a very sensible boy <laughs> because um, unknown to any of us at the time, I had quite a big tumour growing in my cervix um, and he was very sensible for not wanting to head down that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
So just before I had the C-section, obviously they did another check to make sure that um, you know, everything was fine. And I remember the doctor that did the examination, the midwife was in the room as well, saying, your cervix looks angry. Now, I didn't quite know what he meant by this. I kind of had the image of a, a cervix-shaped hulk, <laughs> a cervix smash. <laughs> and um, he just kind of suggested that once I'd had my little boy, that um, I kind of give it the six to eight weeks and then have my cervical screening done, which was due anyway, because um, the last one I'd had was when I just after I'd had my daughter. Um, so they kind of were thinking it was uh, an ectropion, I think it's called, that they were thinking it was, which is basically where the cervix gets all annoyed. There's lots of blood to the area, so it does bleed and it's quite sensitive. Nothing was on their mind about it being a potential malignancy at all. So um, kept having the bleeding and was having random contractions so that they got him out more quickly. Um, and everything was fine. He was fine. Everything went great. In fact, C-section was beautiful um, and really good. Diamorphine is wonderful. Um, <laughs> and we went on our merry way. So um, I was doing what you know you normally do with a newborn, staying up very late and not sleeping very much. But I was aware that I had the most horrendous back pain. Um, and again, I just put it down to the fact that um, I have a diagnosis of fibromyalgia and I've had that for years. So I kind of thought, well, maybe just having the C-section, being pulled around, having a newborn baby and a three-year-old, it's just, you know, flared up a bit of a chronic issue anyway. So again, didn't think too much of it. But as the weeks went on, the pain got worse and worse. And I was having pain all across my back and down my leg. Um, and I remember standing there at night, holding my little boy, trying to get him to settle and just crying because the pain was just horrendous. Oh. Um, so I went off to the health visitor and just mentioned it to them and said, look, I'm still having bleeding. It's getting worse. I've got horrible pain. And they said, well, look, go and see a GP because that's probably not normal. Um, GP, the first GP I saw kind of dismissed it as being, well, you're only kind of six weeks post-birth and um, it, sometimes people just take longer for it to settle than others. So again, I gave it another couple of weeks and again, then spoke to my health visitor and she said, no, definitely, you have to go back. This time I saw an amazing GP who was so lovely and she did an exam, well, she tried to do an examination and just went, yeah, I can't, I can't see anything. There's too much blood. You need to go to hospital now and go and see the emergency gynae. They were wow. still thinking that it was potentially like an infection um, mm, right. from the C-section or you can sometimes get like a retained bit of placenta um, and because there's still blood supply going to it, it can cause you to bleed. Right. So again, no one was thinking anything other than birth, pregnancy-related stuff. Yeah. Um, so when I went along to the, <laughs> to the emergency department and saw the gynae that was there who basically just gave me some antibiotics and some medication to help with the pain and to help with the bleeding and sent me on my way and arranged for me to have an ultrasound the following week, um, which was fine. Again, at that point, I wasn't really thinking anything other than pregnancy stuff. Just um, kind of thinking, yeah, it's, this is just a complicated healing. Yeah, I just, it never even crossed my mind that it would be anything nasty or, you know, definitely not a malignancy. Mm, I guess, um, why, would, why would you think? No, exactly. Like and I think, you know, from doing a bit of research since, it's so rare to have cervical cancer in pregnancy. It's something like one in 10,000 or something ridiculous. Wow. Um, so it's not on anyone's mind. 
So I went along to have the ultrasound done and then have an examination with the um, gynae doctor during the appointment. Now, the gynae doctor was absolutely lovely. She was fantastic. And she did the examination and she had the results of the ultrasound. And she said, you know, she was talking to my little boy who was with me in the push chair. And he was only kind of, oh, he must have been about nine weeks old at this point. Um, so she was being all lovely with him and, and then said, oh, you know, get yourself dressed. I'm just going to go out and speak to my consultant because she was like a registrar um, and said, I'll come back in and then we'll let you know what the plan is. So I said, fine, got myself dressed, chatting to my baby. And um, <laughs> she came back in and immediately I knew that something was not right because she did the, the thing that she was meant so well with it, but she literally sat right next to me on the bed. She put her hand on my leg. <laughs> She almost did the whole head tilt thing <laughs> and she changed from being so like smiley and happy and, and chatty to being very kind of serious and quiet and was like, you know, we're, um, we're going to refer you um, for some more investigations and we're going to refer you within two weeks. And obviously being a nurse, I went, okay, right. So yep. that's not great. <laughs> um, and she said, well, you know, in the examination, we've we've seen something is not normal. So we need to refer you to have like a colposcopy. So have a proper camera, get a better, closer look um, at what's going on. We're not thinking that there's anything really nasty. It's just that, you know, you've got some symptoms and we have to do this. This is normal process. And of course, I was thinking, yeah, that's rubbish. <laughs> you don't refer people via a two-week wait pathway if you're not thinking cancer. Yeah. So... Um, I kind of, I went away from that and, and in my head, I kind of put two and two together and, and accurately came up with four. Everyone else thought I was coming up with 40, but um, I, was, I was right. Um, you know, all my family. You, know. you do. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think once, that, once they said that, everything kind of fell into place and I kind of just went, oh my God, why didn't I realise this beforehand? I'm a nurse. Yeah. I should know this stuff. Mm -hmm. But you just... You just don't think about it, you know. I was 35 with a newborn baby and a three-year-old. It was definitely not part of the plan <laughs> and not something I ever anticipated. Nobody else in my family has ever had cancer. Um, I've always had my cervical screening, which has always been fine, negative, no abnormalities at all, ever. Um, so, again, it was never something that I even contemplated um, would be on the cards. So I went to the colposcopy within a week I was seen and had the biopsies done there. They were amazing in the colposcopy clinic at, at Maidstone, Tunbridge Wells. They, I can't fault any of the care that I had. They were absolutely fantastic. Um, and on the day, I put him on the spot a little bit, the consultant gynae-oncologist who did the biopsies. And he said, obviously, you know, we've, we've, I've, I've seen a visible mass. Um, obviously, I won't know if it's cancerous until the... Um, the biopsy results come back, but I'm I'm pretty certain it will come back as something. Mm. Um, and I did ask him outright, you know, do you think there's any chance that this is benign? And he was very honest and said, no, I'd be very, right. very surprised if this was benign. Um, but obviously, we won't know what the staging is or grading or anything like that until we've done biopsies, come, until they come back, and then um, until we get you a CT scan and an MRI scan, and we'll maybe have to do an examination under anaesthetic to get a better physical view as well. Mm. Um, and so I kind of went off... At this point, I was on my own, so I'd gone to the appointment on my own or with my baby. Um, so it was all a 
bit of a blur. Um, I do remember afterwards going and sitting outside the like women's and children's area to, to feed my little boy because I was still breastfeeding at the time. Um, and I remember trying to ring people. And I rang my mum and I rang my husband and nobody was answering. So I rang my best mate, um, Sarah, and spoke to her and said, crap, they think I've got cancer. Um, and it was just really surreal. Just really real, surreal experience. Just, yeah, very, very odd. It's difficult to kind of describe how you're thinking or feeling unless you've been through it. I, I just, no matter what you read in books and stuff about how people might react to different situations and things, you can't really have an idea of what it's like unless you've been through it yourself. Um, so I went home, drove myself home, got myself together and drove me and my little boy Dylan home. Um, and then... After that, it was a bit of a whirlwind, really. So I remember having um, having to obviously go for the scans and things, but I don't know whether it was fortuitously or not. Um, I ended up being rushed to hospital. I had um, a fever of kind of 41.5 um, and was having kind of uncontrollable shivering rigors and um, the pain in my pelvis was just horrendous. I remember the paramedics called out um, because I just couldn't walk, I couldn't get off the mattress. I was lying on a mattress on the floor in the living room um, and I just couldn't get up and I was just freezing cold, but obviously my temperature was through the roof. Um, and the paramedics came out and gave me gas and air to try and help settle the pain so that he could get me into the ambulance because we were in like third floor flat. Um, and even the gas and air didn't work. And I love gas and air, I'm a big fan. <laughs> Worked brilliantly through my, like, my label with my little girl um, and it, not even that touched it nothing it just it was absolutely hideous um but eventually they got me into the hospital and they kind of investigated they were thinking that i had sepsis and um but they couldn't find any reason for why i had you know just a ridiculously high temperature and why my body was reacting that way they took swabs and bloods and gases and everything that they do and um so whilst I was in hospital, I met another fantastic consultant, gynaecologist, who was just oh amazing, um, love her to pieces, um, and she came to see me in the hospital whilst I was in, and said that obviously she'd known uh, about the situation and um, that I was being investigated from her colleague um, within the same hospital and that they'd organised for me to have the scans whilst I was an inpatient instead of having to wait. Um, and luckily she was brilliant and organised. They have like their multidisciplinary team meeting where they discuss all of the kind of scan results and, and staging and treatment plans and things on a Friday. So she arranged for me to go back into the hospital on the Friday afternoon so that I could have my results. Um, after they discussed them so basically as soon as you possibly could have any results um which was brilliant because she knew that i'd told her when she came to see me that we'd recently um a friend of ours had died recently from breast cancer she'd had primary breast cancer and then gone on to develop secondaries um and it was only i think it was about six it was the april it was the april because it was the day before my birthday that she died um, and so that was really fresh in my mind as well so you know being told that I had a potential cancer as well I was obviously spiraling with a bit of anxiety freaking out a little bit and so she made sure that she rushed things through as much as possible which was just lovely um, and you know not necessary so the fact that they'd gone kind of above and beyond to do it was just really really nice and that's mm -hmm. how you know that good patient-centered personalized care should be um, so 
yeah, so I had the scans, went home on the Wednesday, was discharged from hospital. They'd managed to get fevers under control with medications and stuff, and then came back in. Um, one of my good friends that I did my nurse training with took me in for the appointment so that just in case um, I fell apart a bit, then I had somebody there to take notes and um, pay attention for me. Um, but I'd been doing my research myself, as you do, um, Dr. Google. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, being ah, but I'm being a health professional. I didn't just use Google. I used Google Scholar, so it kind of felt a bit <laughs> felt a bit more academic. <laughs> but I'd been reading all about treatment plans for cervical cancer for the different stages, and so when I went into my appointment to be get told my results, in my head, I'd already diagnosed myself with stage four because the pain in my pelvis was so severe that I assumed it was in the bones. So I kind of had already set myself that it was going to be incurable and it was going to be horrendous and really advanced. So actually when she said it was staged, well at the time it was classed as stage 2B. Um, so that's where it's, it's greater than I think like four centimeters. So mine was about f over, just over five centimeters. And it had spread into the parametrium, so the tissues surrounding the cervix. Um, and it had also gone into the lymph nodes in the pelvis as well. And at the time, lymph nodes didn't change your staging with cervical cancer. Right. So in 2018, um, they changed the staging so that now lymph nodes are uh, change your staging if you have lymph node involvement, depending on if it's localized in the pelvis or if it's paraortic and uh, elsewhere. So I think if I'd been diagnosed with what I had been then now, I would have been staged as 3C1. Oh, so that's quite a big difference mm. psychologically, I think, having that kind of difference in stage. Because you kind of think, I said to them at the time, you know, stage two, oh, that's all right. It's kind of not the best, but it's not the worst either. It's a bit of a, I think I called it a mediocre tumour. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, black humour is definitely my coping mechanism. Um, and... Yeah, so I was quite positive. I was like, well, actually, this isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. I can, I can do this. It's fine. You know, stage two, it's not really aggressive and, and it's treatable. So, it's, you know, I think my prognosis from looking into it was around 45% or something, five-year survival. But actually, I'm almost at, I'm what, four years now this year. So, um, and have been clear and had no recurrences. So that's really positive. Um, but yeah, during that appointment, they set out the kind of treatment plan. So they explained that I'd have once weekly chemotherapy, so cisplatin, which is um, comes from mustard gas, which is Ooh. a bit scary. And it's also <laughs> got metal in it. Somebody else taught us that, didn't they, Tom? Oh. Yeah, uh, platinum. Platinum? Yes. Yeah, Who makes taught sense. us that? That was Verity. That was Verity that taught us that. Yeah, we learned that if it's got platinum in it, it means it's got platinum in it. There we are. Oh, look, so I'm really expensive now. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I've, had, I've had the same one and I know nothing about it. I was just, just sat there and said, right, just put it in me. Oh, I don't want to know anything about it. Do what you need it. to do. Yeah. Yeah, I can't do that. I kind of <laughs> wish that I could do the whole just get on with it but I just I think I looked at it as a really really severe form of continuing professional development so as a nurse <laughs> I could use that and like reflect on it as part of my revalidation we have to do <laughs> but um yeah so it was weekly cisplatin five days a week so Monday to Friday external beam radiotherapy um for five weeks and then three sessions of brachytherapy so internal radiotherapy for the three weeks after I'd finished the 
chemo and the in, uh, external radiotherapy. Um, so I thought, okay, so I've got a plan and I was given like uh, a sheet, millions of sheets of paper with all of the dates and times that I needed to be in once they'd done my um, PET scan and everything that was sent out. Um, and then, yeah, so I had to go through all the planning CTs where they kind of draw rubbish tattoos on you, which are just awful little <laughs> grey, bluey, splodgy dot things. Um, I did say that they need to train them to do like skulls or butterflies or stars <laughs> or something just to make it a little bit kind of... Something bit, other yeah, than just the dots. Just dots, yeah, I exactly. I didn't even get dots. I used to have mine reapplied with marker pen. Oh, really? Oh, see. So that was before <laughs> tattoos. Yeah, I, I don't mind them necessarily, but I'm aware that there are a lot of people that I've spoken to who they're just... They don't like them. It makes them really, really self-conscious with their body image. And um, it's just it's a kind of reminder. A and reminder yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, so luckily because mine's cervical, mine's all hidden anyway, because I'm certainly not at the age or situation where I'm wearing bikinis. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so nobody ever sees them, so it's fine. Um, but no, for people who've had them, I know one of my friends, when she was going through treatment, she had one on her chest because she was having um, palliative radiotherapy on her spine. So they had to kind of do one in the front of her chest as well. And she was really kind of aware of this weird, odd-looking new freckle that she'd been given. Um, but all of the, like, the, the radiographers were absolutely lovely. Everyone. I really can't fault anyone throughout the whole process. Everyone was just so supportive. And it was really positive communication skills they made you feel really reassured and listened to and validated never kind of felt that anything was too much of a problem that you weren't bothering anyone um my oncologists were fantastic um i follow some of them on twitter and they are still fantastic and i look to them as role models for you know professionally wise how we should all be that kind of compassionate personalized care it's just mm -hmm. yeah brilliant um it certainly takes a special kind of person to be an oncologist. It, that's it for sure. does. It, it really does. Yeah. Um, and they're just, you know, they're under so much pressure as well. Mm. But, yeah, so treatment started. Radiotherapy wasn't so bad. Um, didn't really notice anything from that for a couple of weeks. And then it kind of kicked in a little bit after about two weeks or so. Then the side effects kicked in. And then that was pretty horrific with, you know, passing all I can describe as foamy yellow liquid <laughs> several dozen times a day. <laughs> um, and the fatigue I really wasn't expecting from radiotherapy. I kind of associated that with chemo, but I never really thought of it with the radiotherapy. Um, but that was definitely something that I noticed as well, which was made worse by the fact that I had to travel kind of 45 minutes to an hour each way to go and have my treatment every day, um, oh, wow. which was just exhausting. And I couldn't drive because I was either vomiting or trying not to poo. So <laughs> I wasn't very good at concentrating on driving at the time. <laughs> so luckily... Yeah, friends and family were very good and, and kind of took me to and from appointments, bless them. Um, but the chemo was the thing acutely that really kicked my ass. Um, I managed three out of my five and I begged, begged to not have any more. I remember being admitted for the second or third time for IV fluids and anti-sickness meds because I'd lost about 10 kilograms in a couple of weeks. And Which, don't get me wrong, I had my baby weight, so I was quite pleased, but not that way. <laughs> weight Watchers or Slimming World would have been my preference over chemo. Um, <laughs> and 
I remember seeing um, my oncologist came to visit me on the ward. I remember saying to her, look, you can do anything else you want. Give me more radiotherapy. Give me more brachytherapy at the end. Whatever you want. Just, I just can't. I don't want any more chemo. I can't have any more chemo. I just can't go through it. The nausea, the vomiting. I couldn't even swallow my own saliva at one point. It was so painful. I had like esophagitis, I think, um, oh. where like your whole throat just gets really inflamed and... I don't know whether that was the chemo, whether it was just the combination of the chemo and just vomiting so many times a day as well. And it was just awful. I literally just slept and lay down. If I stood up, my blood pressure would tank and I'd get really faint. I had to kind of sit on the bottom of the shower floor and then go back to bed afterwards. It was just rubbish. And I kind of thought, God, I felt better before I started treatment than I do now. Um, again, it's just weird to go around having cancer and then feel better when you uh, feel worse having the treatment and I know people warned me that you'd get you get nausea and vomiting and um, potential symptoms and side effects but they I don't think you can really tell people what it is going to be really like and obviously everyone's different so there's always that extreme um, you know from I know people who've got through treatment without any major problems and have carried on working um, and then people who like myself have kind of asked for it to stop but um, I kind of knew I was going to be a sicky person because I had hyperemesis with both of my pregnancies and was in hospital for probably the same amount of time with my pregnancies as I was with my cancer um, and had the same kind of weight loss and nausea and vomiting. Um, and I get motion sick. I can't even go on the teacups at the fair because I just get really sick. So. <laughs> I'll join you on that one now. Yeah, horrible. it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so I should have known, really, that if anyone was going to get really pukey, it was going to be me. Um, and, you know, they tried. They gave me all of the anti-sickness drugs in the whole world, things that I'd never even heard of before. And I tried acupuncture and acupressure and hypnotherapy and aromatherapy, and nothing worked. It was just... Yeah, nothing was touching it at all. Did they ever try uh, Akinzio? Ooh, what's that? That is, I say, is a five-day wonder drug. It basically take it an hour before treatment, um, and it's got oh, it's got another type of anti-sickness in it, which means that you can't top it up with that particular type. But it lasts for five days, and it it's an absolute godsend. I never had an ounce of nausea while I was on it. Oh, I've never heard of that. It allowed me to reduce the dexamethasone as well because that was... Oh, that was amazing. I I just couldn't stop hiccuping. Oh, no. Yeah, it was awful. And with the cisplatin and the dexamethasone, they're not sure exactly what with me, but they... uh, It caused me to be type 1 diabetic. Oh, gosh. So dexamethasone shot my blood sugars right up, so... Akinzio, yeah, it, it helped massively. So I wasn't oh, wow. sure if you'd ever tried that before. But that was... Yeah, so looking at the ingredients, I had similar ingredients. I was given kind of Ondansetron mm. and I had a Prepotent, um, which is one of the other ones for chemo. So I was given similar drug combinations, but no, I hadn't. I don't think I'd had that one. So that's always good to know. Mm. I remember that for my patients as well. <laughs> <The> morning, <laughs> See, it's always handy. Every day's a school day. Um, but yeah, so treatment kind of went by and as soon as I stopped the chemo, 
within literally a week or two, I had so much more energy. I'd actually managed to like wash my hair and dry it, which was like, I got so excited that I actually managed to straighten my hair for the first time in weeks um, and put makeup on and actually go out for a little walk. Um, so it was definitely the chemo that knocked me for six. And I was really glad that and I felt that I did the right thing by asking them to stop it. I didn't regret that decision. And luckily for cervical cancer, the chemo isn't the thing that cures it. It's the radiotherapy. The chemo just sensitizes the cells so that the radiotherapy can do its job. So I think because of the type of cancer I had, they were quite they were okay about stopping the chemo and they just gave me an extra couple of boosts of radio external radiotherapy um, to kind of make up for it a little bit. Um, the brachytherapy was interesting. That was quite an interesting experience. Once a week for three weeks going and having a spinal anaesthetic to numb you from the waist down um, with luckily plenty of sedation. I did request, please give me as much sedation as possible. I don't want to know anything. I'm quite happy to just have a sleep. <laughs> um, and then they insert all of the equipment through the cervix and put it in place so that then, and put a catheter in, and then you have to kind of lie there all day. You're not allowed to sit at more than 30 degrees. Um, and you have to lie there all day, and then they take you for a scan to make sure everything's in the right place. And then they connect the radiation to it then and then kind of deliver really high intensity radiation directly into the cervix through the equipment that they put in wow. um it looks if you look at the images it looks quite scary <laughs> um but obviously you can't feel anything because the the spinal is still working at that point right. um and they'll give you like extra pain relief and things as well if you need to for when they remove it um but again i sh a lot of people have had quite traumatic experiences going through things like brachytherapy. It's very invasive, um, and especially for people who've maybe had you know, sexual violence in the past or anything like that, it can be a really traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. And I think the one thing that is so important with the health professionals is that their ability to communicate and to reassure and to be able to provide that, that comfort and that kind of positive experience. So what could have been a very traumatic experience became a really positive one because of the team that I was supported by. Um, and I still remember now to this day, lying there kind of worrying that I was giggling so much that I was going to dislodge the equipment that they'd spent so long placing. Because <laughs> especially the lead, one of the leads who's there now was just so funny and just distracting, chatting about anything in the world, you know, anything that just gives you a bit of a distraction and humanizes everything as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was just lovely. It was the most amazing experience from a health professional, you know, looking at how the health professionals were with me. It was amazing. If they were my staff, I would be over the moon because they're just, yeah, fantastic bunch of people. They're really, really good. And I think now I kind of bang on about it in any kind of talk I do or anything, just about how important those interpersonal skills are, that it's all well and good being kind of academically knowledgeable or knowing all of the theory or being really clinically skilled. And obviously that's really important. But from the patient's point of view, they don't know about that. They're not thinking about that. But actually your ability to hold their hand and distract them and comfort them and make them feel safe um, and trust you. That is the most important thing I think that any health professional can do in that situation for, for patients going through things like that from any part of, you know, the cancer journey or any kind of, you know, condition that you're having to go in and have things done for. Just those interpersonal skills are just so vital. Um, and I do bang on about it a lot when I do kind of teaching sessions for um, like radiographers and things. I tend to focus on that more than anything else. Um, 
So after treatment finished, I think that was when the fun and games began. <laughs> so luckily treatment worked <coughs> and I had my follow-up scans and I had no evidence of disease, um, which was great and all really pleased. Um, but then <sighs> some of the symptoms didn't really settle. So the bowel problems, the bladder problems, um, tinnitus from the chemotherapy, um, never really settled. It's intermittent, luckily, but it's still there. Um, and things like the kidney damage from the, the chemotherapy, that took quite a long time to recover as well. The neuropathy that I developed because of the chemotherapy, that's never gone away. That's permanent. Um, and I think that's the other thing that health professionals need to make really clear to patients when they're giving them the information before their treatments, when they're kind of giving them about the side effects, is that they give them awareness that it may not go away, mm -hmm. that we hope, but in a lot of cases it will, um, but there is always a risk that these symptoms, these side effects can be permanent in some patients, mm -hmm. because at least then you're aware, and if it doesn't happen, then great, that's a bonus. But if it does happen, you kind of feel that you were prepared for it then. Mm -hmm. um, but I think saying to people, you know, you might get a bit of neuropathy whilst you're having it, but once the treatment's finished, it will go away. That gives people, that's not an accurate representation of what can happen. So I think that's really important just for health professionals to be honest with people. You don't have to scare them, but, you know, just Maybe give them that kind yeah. of honest, informed consent that I they suppose. know that it could happen. Yeah, I suppose it could save them a lot of time in the long run as well. Yeah. A lot of, of follow-up appointments are going to be, well, I've still got this pain in my feet. When's that going to go away? When's yeah. That gonna... And they're going to be having that same conversation over and over again. Definitely, 100%. Yeah. Definitely. Um, but the rate... <laughs> so those bits and pieces are still an ongoing issue, and I'm very aware of it, but it doesn't have too much of an impact um it's more so kind of at night time when your feet are burning and tingling oh, and kind of dangling them out of the covers trying to find a cold spot <laughs> um, i did I, find i don't mean to laugh but i am i have the same same thing so i'm i'm just relating to it yes <laughs> do you know what i found really positive when i was going through treatment and yeah. i had horrible burning pain in my feet during treatment um and it felt a bit like raw flesh. Like if you've burst a blister and you've got that really fresh skin underneath, mm. that's really tender. That's what my feet felt like when I was having the treatment done. Um, yeah. And the one thing that I loved was flip-flops. Cold flip-flops were my saving grace. <laughs> it's not going to work for everyone because some people can't tolerate cold when they have chemoneuropathy. But for me, with that burning pain, oh, flip-flops in the fridge or freezer were just amazing. Yeah. Um, not <laughs> so great to eat. In the freezer, top in a bag. Yeah. In a bag, obviously, for hygiene purposes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so those bits. But I think with the radiotherapy, although at the time during treatment, it was the chemo that worried me more, actually, long-term, it's probably been the radiotherapy that's caused more of the ongoing issues. So... You know, the bowel problems and the bladder problems, they ease to a certain degree, but are still very much a daily reminder. Mm. Um, and, yeah, that's taken a bit of adjusting to, and just things like, like I'm doing a marathon walk on Sunday for the London Marathon for our um, local hospital charity over and above. And I have to make sure that I plot my route based on where the toilets are along the way just in case <laughs> so it's yeah it's little things like that that you just i never really had to think about before but now are very much 
whenever I'm planning journeys, I have to kind of think about where they are. And during COVID, when they shut toilets down everywhere, it was just hell. Yeah. It was awful. And I don't think anyone really took into consideration that kind of impact on patients who've got bowel or bladder issues or stomas and, and that kind of thing, that actually you need to have access to public toilets to be able to go anywhere. Mm. You know, they were talking about exercise and making sure you still go outside and have your exercise. But if there aren't those facilities available, that almost, you know, confines people to their homes, which, yeah, I had a bit of bee in my bonnet about that at the time. Yeah, but, um, yeah. yeah, but having like a radar key and I've got like a little thing on my key ring that um, I have just in case I need to kind of go into a shop urgently and say, please let me use your toilet. Um, so that's really positive. I, so far, touch wood, I've not actually had to use it. Um, but it's just nice knowing it's there, mm, you yeah. know, that, and hopefully most shops would be quite supportive from what I've heard people report back, fingers crossed. Okay. Um, but I think, yeah, just thinking about the long-term effects of treatment. So this is where, for me, I've become very passionate about the long-term and late effects of treatment and making sure that patients have really good appropriate support because unfortunately there isn't as much support out there for people once they've once they've been finished their treatment and once they're classed as no evidence of disease or you know once the cancer's been treated then there's a bit of a gap in the market where there's not that many late effect services around the country. Um, I was very, very lucky that um, I had a late effect service nearby and Dr. Lisa Durrant was incredible and, you know, gave me some really good advice and support and she's just brilliant and amazing and everyone should have one of her everywhere. Um, but I'm very, very aware that there aren't many of those services around and they have very specific criteria um, and that's something that I'm very aware of and very passionate about trying to to change and trying to get more of that support available to people afterwards so um so much so that i've crazily got myself on a professional doctorate <laughs> to try and do that as part of it so um yeah i do kind of bag on about that quite a lot and do it whenever i do kind of the talks and stuff for people i was kind of focus on that side of things as well that kind of support for people late effects and the long-term effects where gps just don't have the skills and knowledge they don't have the insight into the treatments that were used and um and often i've heard of so many patients being you know jumped around different specialities trying to find a diagnosis for what's going on with them and they have to see multiple specialists for lots of different things like a gastroenterologist or a colorectal surgeon and a a urologist and a gynae and you know all of these different specialists where actually the issue is that they had pelvic radiation and now you know all of it is related they're not separate issues they're all part of this wider pelvic radiation oh, disease I and it's just tell you on that yeah oh it's just so infuriating that they just the gift that keeps on giving and the more it is and the more that we get out there that people are going to start going hang on this might be linked to your treatment Yes. And it saves months to say, I went through so many different tests when they were trying to get to the bottom of mine and it was like, yeah, yeah it's radiation. Yeah. And just knowing that, just, you know, the one thing that Lisa did for me at the Late Effects Clinic that was the best thing in the world that really helped was just explaining why I had my symptoms 
and why it made sense that the radiation had caused those symptoms. Um, and actually that, more than anything else she told me about how to manage it, that validation that I'm not going mad, that there is a reason why I'm having all of these different issues. And like she showed me my CT scan from like the planning so you could see exactly where the radiation, the area the radiation had affected and, and you know, explained that, well, actually, you know, it's going to affect everything. There is fallout from it. And we know that it's not like chemo. It doesn't kind of leave your system very quickly. It goes on and on and on. And as you said, it's like the gift that keeps on giving, you know. And we've seen patients come into the hospital when I was working in the pain team that, you know, had their treatment 20 years ago. And it's now that they're come in with problems with their bowels from ischemia and fibrosis and things, so scarring. And so, yeah, yeah there's definitely not enough talked about or known about it. And there's definitely more... I think G the GI consequences, so like the gut problems from radiotherapy, seem to be far better looked into. Um, and Pelvic Radiation Disease Association UK are fantastic. They've done amazing work with um, specialists to, to have... Um, documentation and kind of guidelines for, for professionals. So if they have somebody presenting to tell them, you know, which tests, which examinations you should do um, to try and rule out what it is or what it isn't. Because obviously there's multiple things that the radiotherapy could cause problems with and it's about trying to find the right one. So mine was bilacid malabsorption from the damage to the small bowel. Um, so my body just doesn't reabsorb the bile it produces. And so that causes then a lot of abdominal pain and bloating and um, diarrhea and things. So now I know that and there's medications and there's things that you can do to try and help it. So it's just, yeah, the more education we can get out there for patients as well as health professionals, the better. Um, and Macmillan and um, eLearner for Health and things. So there are lots more out there now than there were even just a couple of years ago, kind of webinars and e-learning and modules and things as well. So it, it is getting a lot better. Um, and there are more late effects clinics popping up all over the place now. So it's definitely, even just in the few years since I've been um, since I had my treatment, it's massively improved and it is changing. And so it's so. really positive. I'm, I'm trying to find a late effects clinic now. I've moved back down south and I haven't found one yet, but I'm hoping there'll be one somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I know um, Pelvic Radiation Disease Association UK are really, really good. So um, they'll often have lists of where there are late effects services and right. um, who, who, what kind of services they offer and stuff. So, um, but yeah, no, it is, it does seem to be getting better. There is much more known now, but there's still, there's still lots of room for improvement. Definitely. Mm. A definitely. Long way to go, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know what else to say. I think that's pretty much my life story. <laughs> <laughs> so, so whereabouts are you, are you at this moment then? Are you, are you still under observation? Are you still... No, I, I think my oncology team got bored of me and fed up of me, so they got rid of me at two years. I was discharged <laughs> and, and put onto like a patient-initiated follow-up pathway, um, which for me is much better. I got really fed up of just coming to appointments every three months or six months and just coming in for five minutes to say no changes to my symptoms Bye. <laughs> um, I wasn't having examinations because I find the examinations really, really painful. So they wouldn't do them unless there's a reason to. Um, and so actually for me, I said, look, if I can have it so that I can just contact you, I know what symptoms to look out for. I know the red flags. I know when I need to ask for help. Um, Christmas time last year, I suddenly started having bleeding again. So obviously that was a bit of a bit of a panicked moment. So I straight away contacted the clinical nurse specialists and said, you know, I've started having bleeding, 
what do I do? And immediately within two weeks, I had an MRI scan and I had an appointment and I had an examination uh, under anaesthetic all within like a month. So those pathways work when you've got that support in place. So for me, that reassurance of knowing that somebody's there at the end of the phone or email if I need them was perfect. I know it wouldn't work for everyone. Some people like to know that they've got those routine appointments and especially if you're having examinations. But in my situation, it was it worked perfectly for me and it took the pressure off the service as well I thought there's no point coming for five minutes when somebody else could have that appointment who needs it so yeah I'm, I'm a big fan of the patient initiated follow-up pathways for the right people yeah yeah I think definitely. that's the key definitely yeah the right it has people. to be personalized yeah yeah definitely because for some people they don't want that and others they desperately need it yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. It has to be. And that's the whole thing about personalised care. It, you know, it should be throughout the whole process from the time you get referred all the way through until afterwards. You know, it should all be personalised. Um, and that's, I hope, what we're trying to aim to achieve at the moment. But, yeah, for me, definitely that worked beautifully. And my CNSs are absolutely wonderful. So if you were to, to sort of come across yourself uh, before diagnosis now or somebody that was going through that same sort of process, what message would you like to sort of give them? Oh, wow. Mm. That's a big question. Um, Just to share a bit of positivity to sort of help people, really. Yeah. No, it's a brilliant question. I think, I think more than anything in the world, just be kind to yourself. Show yourself the compassion that you would show somebody else in your situation because we're often very, very good at supporting everyone else around us but not very good at doing the same thing for ourselves. And I, I beat myself up so much that I couldn't, whilst I was going through treatment, look after my children. I couldn't go to work. I, you know, I couldn't be a, a, the wife or daughter or mother that I wanted to be. Um, and I made myself feel so guilty about it constantly that I think that's the one piece of advice for anyone is just be kind to yourself. Mm. It's hard. It's a full-time job going through treatment and you need to give yourself that kindness and compassion and that permission to just, just focus on what you need to do. Focus on yourself. Let other people help you. They want to. You know, my family, I think, they kept offering help and I'm not very good at taking help. I'm much better at just getting on and doing it myself. <laughs> but... I think for them, it was a way for them to get a bit of control back as well. I think I'm speaking for them, but I think often they felt a bit helpless that they couldn't do anything to fix the situation. And so by being able to give me a lift or look after the kids or, you know, a, give me some time where I could go to bed and have a sleep and I didn't have to worry about um, the kids running around and, and crying or being crazy and stuff, then... I think that was their way of being able to feel like they were doing something then. Um, and at the time, I didn't really appreciate that actually for them, it was probably just as important for them as it was for me to let yeah. them do that. Yeah. Definitely in hindsight. And I think I've said it several times before, but in some ways, I think it was harder for my family than it was for me. Not, not physically, obviously. It was much harder physically for me. But emotionally wise, you know, I didn't, after my diagnosis, I didn't cry. I didn't, you know, I didn't have any of that. I think I was so focused on just, this is my job. I need to go to treatment. I need to get through the side effects. I need to get through everything so that I can have the best, you know, outcome at the end. And that's yeah. all I focused on. Um, 
and I didn't have time to think of anything else because I was either asleep, I was in treatment, or I was vomiting. So (laughs) I'm not very good at multitasking. (laughs) Whereas my family didn't have that. They were just kind of watching on from the outside as observers. And so, yeah, I think they needed just as much support as I did, but they didn't really have that because I had my CNSs, I had the consultants, I had the chemo nurses, whereas they didn't have that. They didn't really have anyone there. Nobody ever really said, you know, what do your family need? Do your family need support? Um, And I think this is what I love about where I work now, that we have um, a cancer wellbeing centre, and that's not just for patients who are going through treatment, but it's for their family, their loved ones, their carers, and it's for them at any point of their cancer, you know, experience, so whether it's from diagnosis all the way through to years later. And I really like that, that it's not just about the individual, it's about the people in their lives as well, because we have to keep them well so that they can support the person going through it as well. So, yeah. yeah. And the ripples from a cancer diagnosis spread out much further than people realise. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, massively. Because even, you know, like even your friendship group, colleagues, anything like that, anyone who knows you is impacted, even if you don't know them very closely. Yep. It's amazing how it, it really does affect people and I've experienced this from the other side now having had people that I know very closely like one of my best friends um, all the way through to people that I've known of through antenatal groups and things but actually it's amazing how much it hit home when it happens to people even if you only know them because they're a neighbour who lives a few doors down it can have a much more emotive impact than we would anticipate I always kind of thought it was just your close kind of your close family and friends but actually you're right it does have a much much wider impact Definitely. Yeah. So while we were sort of messaging uh, about the this interview before doing it, we were, we mentioned that we do a, a charity of the week. Um, and you mentioned that you'd like to talk, you'd like this one to be about the Eve appeal and considering it's gynecological uh, cancer. Mark. Yes. At the time of recording, it won't be by the time this comes out. No. Right at the end <laughs> So what we'll do, we're going to focus our episode on that, but I know that you mentioned that you'd like to mention a few of the charities that are close to yourself. Oh, yeah. So um, it was really difficult trying to choose a charity because I've been involved with so many and I've had so much support from so many charities. Um, but I think the main the main ones from kind of the experience that I've had were from the very beginning, um, like Joe Cervical Cancer Trust had brilliant information that I looked at when I was being diagnosed and about the treatment and the side effects as well. So that was they were really, really good resource for information and for support for, for patients and their families as well. Um, obviously, the Eve Appeal, fantastic information um, on there about the five different gynecological cancers. And they do so much incredible work about um, research regarding uh, detection and prevention and especially around the rarer cancers as well. Um, and that's something that's very, you know, they're a charity that's very close to my heart. Um, Mummy Star is a charity that is much lesser known I think and they are absolutely amazing so Mummy Star is a charity specifically for people who have had a diagnosis of cancer during pregnancy or within a year of birth Um, and the support they provide people is amazing they've got an online forum where all of their mummies and also they've got a daddy's one as well so they don't get daddies don't get forgotten as well Um, (laughs) can kind of gain that support from other people who've been through the experience Um, but they also offer kind of grants to people as well and they do a lot of education for professionals so I've 
I'm organising for them to come and do a talk to at the trust that I work um, to the midwives and uh, cancer nurses and things just to give them a bit more insight into what it's like to to have a pregnancy and a cancer diagnosis at the same time. Each of them are very stressful, but you put them together and it's a whole other kettle of fish. Um, and then, as I've mentioned on this um, in, in the talk, was the Pelvic Radiation Disease Association UK, who um, I am very closely linked with and are fantastic at supporting people who've had pelvic radiation for whatever cancer it was. Um, so men and women and Anyone in between, everyone is invited and supported by them. Um, we've got people who've had prostate cancer, colorectal cancer, anal cancer, vaginal, vulval, cervical, everything basically. If you've had if you've had radiation to your pelvic area, then you are welcome to access their support. They've got a really good um, online support group. Um, they hold talks, they do conferences every year, um, and they have kind of a medical expert panel, which um, some of the others do as well, where if you've got questions and you're not sure, you can contact them, and then they can put you in touch with people um, who may be able to give you a bit of support or advice or signpost you to other resources as well so you know they're all such a fantastic charities that do so much the one I've been in touch with more recently is action radiotherapy um, and action radiotherapy are very much focused on improving access to radiotherapy but also making sure that radiotherapy is um, delivered in as safe a way as possible um, and they've actually, which is brilliant news, they've got um, like a special interest group now for late effects. So there's a group of amazing people who are all like-minded and all very um, focused on improving late effects of um, radiotherapy for patients. So, um, which is fantastic news because hopefully that means that things will start to move forward with lots of like-minded, positive, amazing people together. So, mm. yeah, that really positive things yeah. happening. I keep trying to get in, but I'm not a radiographer, so they won't let me in. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't breached the walls yet, but I'm working on it. I was going to write it. an article for them, but they came back and they wanted like footnotes of where things are coming, and it just scared me too much. I was like, oh, I don't think actually I'm oh, very good at this. No. It You'd was be too brilliant. scholarly, so I kind of backed out. Oh, if you change your mind, let me know. We can do it together. I can do the academic bits, and you can do yeah, the other bits. Yeah, you can bits. do the, like, the medical I can bit. do the references just, and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's really good. I wrote an article for um, Journal of Medical Imaging and Radiation Sciences, and that's the first article I've ever written as a, a patient. Um, it's the first article I've ever done. I haven't done one as a professional either. Um, and actually it was a really positive experience and the people like the journal themselves the editors were so helpful and as a patient trying to publish um it's much easier than as a professional because they're far more kind yeah, <laughs> and they're far more they forgiving are, yeah. um but actually it was you know it was a really really positive experience and, and obviously the piece was about um my experience of, of radiotherapy and again banging on about those interpersonal communication skills and how important they are and how that made such a difference so um, yeah I definitely recommend it to any patients who, who want to kind of have their story heard and make a difference for others if you can get it into you know the charities or some of the journals as well more patients that are authors and publishing the better I think you know it's all well and good people with academia writing stuff but actually we're the experts by experience so you yeah. know we need to get that information out there because it just gives a different different insight to it definitely well I'm very conscious of the time because I know you've mentioned yes. you've, you've got places to be so uh, I think we'll uh, just one last thing and say thank you for coming on the show oh thank you so much for letting me 
bore everyone to death. Oh, <laughs> no, thank you so much, so much for sharing your story, Ria. Honestly, I've always been really looking forward to hearing it. So, um, oh, bless you, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's just really good. And, and you know me, I'm a champion of late effects, so uh, I'll always like to hear that being brought up. <laughs> oh, we'll have to get like a little patient group instead. They've got yes. their radiographers one. We'll have to have a patient group together and then we can kind of try and infiltrate. <laughs> get a joined the, up one. Um, Sarah, the badass bag lady. Who, badass bag lady, yeah. So she's, she's pelvic radiation well. disease as yeah. well. Yeah. She's brilliant. So there's quite a few. And um, Cordelia Galgut, Dr. Cordelia yes. Galgut, she's a really good advocate as well. Um, so, yes, there's quite a few of us out there. We just need to all get together and join a little group. And then hopefully the two groups can combine and the world is our oyster. Indeed. And again, thank you so much for giving us your time for this today. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Take care. So that was the wonderful Rhea's story. Um, and as previously mentioned, Rhea's chosen charity is the Eve Appeal. Uh, at the time of recording, it was September, uh, and that is Gynecological Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, so it's, unfortunately, it's not worked out well enough that we could get this episode out before that month finished. Um, but we still, you know, just because it's October doesn't mean that uh, the charity stops stops working. So we still want to raise awareness of uh, what they do. And the Eve Appeal is a leading UK charity that funds research and raises awareness into the five different gynaecological cancers. These being uh, womb, ovarian, cervical, vulval and vaginal cancers. They were set up to prevent gynaecological cancers and to save lives by funding groundbreaking research focused on developing effective methods of uh, risk prediction, earlier detection and developing screening for all five of those cancers. They've played a crucial role in providing seed funding, core infrastructure funding and project funding in addition to campaigning to raise awareness the world-leading research that they fund is ambitious and challenging, but their vision is simple, a future where gynaecological cancers are a disease of the past, and rightly so, because they are so uh, devastating to so many people, and uh, I think we'll all agree that more needs to be done. Uh, to find out more about the Eve Appeal, please go to www.eveappeal.org.uk and they are always, always looking to raise awareness and trying to help people understand what to look out for uh, and when to see a doctor. And remember, if in doubt, go and see your doctor. Thank you for listening to episode five and we'll see you next week for episode six. Thank you.